Hello everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of With You In Mind. My name is Lisa Upton and I'm joined by my co-pilot Sarah Bullock-Chase. We're the co-founders of Brain Buddy and together we're going to be your podcast host. Before we get started and introduce you to our very special guest today, we would like to give a big shout out to our sponsors, the National Brain Appeal, who are the supporting charity for the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery. And without them, none of this would be possible. So let's get started. Let's cue that jingle and get this episode underway. We're absolutely delighted to be recording our fourth episode of With You In Mind. Today, we are joined by our guest, Amy, our very first patient guest of the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Eamon is 32 years old. He's a PE teacher and he's here today to share his incredible story of brain surgery. Eamon started experiencing strange sensations at the early age of 13, but wasn't diagnosed with epilepsy until he was 18. And after living with epilepsy for over a decade, Eamon made the very brave decision in 2019, when he was 29, to have brain surgery. Eamon's surgery took place on the 14th of February at Queen's Square and was performed by Andrew McAvoy and his team. We're really pleased to have Eamon here with us today to share his story. Eamon, welcome. It's so great to have you here. Sarah and I have been waiting forever to do this podcast with you. So the fact that you're here with us today is just brilliant. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Amazing. So we last saw you in 2019, obviously pre-COVID. You did the talk for us at Queen Square. God, it seems ages ago, didn't it? Yeah, a lot happened, but it feels like a long time, but it actually isn't. It sort of, no. It sort of happened. And how was your life through that kind of period of COVID? Yeah, no, it was, wasn't was too bad. Um, obviously, school wasn't open, but was open. So we were still sort of dipping in and out. Weird, weird times. Thankfully, it now seems a bit of a distant memory. OK, listen, so Sarah at the start shared a little bit about your backstory, but just really keen to go into that a little bit more now, Eamon. So can you tell us? when you first started experiencing the epilepsy and how did it come about? So when I was about 13, um, I had sort of sort of sensation and a bit of a sort of shake down uh, my right arm and did a few scans. There was no medication given or anything there. And it was sort of said that it was just like a bit of a sort of tremor. So there was that initial period and then it just went and there was nothing from it. Um, and then I was on my way back uh, from European Cup final in Russia in 2008 um, and I had a um, full fit on the plane on the way back and um, mm. we were stopped at Warsaw, was taken off and um, saw a doctor there and they wrote a note back and the note was written in Latin and all they could um, sort of pick from it was epil. Mm. So when we got that sort of letter um, sort of translated-ish by someone locally, because no one could read it. Um, and that was what they sort of picked out from that. So that was May 2008 and came back, went to South End Hospital on the Friday and went on some medica- first bit of medication then um, from there. And then kept increasing the medication at that point. 
and then sort of went through a sort of more went through like the scans um from there and that was where I picked out the abnormality on the left side of the brain so did they sort of say it was epilepsy when they prescribed that medication did they know from that seizure you'd had on the plane i would imagine so um but then around after that i was then sort of having like little seizures um and when you say like, little seizures what was that so, like so the, the, my right hand would clench um i would sort of shake for about 30 seconds um I'd be conscious because I'd know what was going on, but I just wouldn't be able to speak. Mm. Um, and that was sort of matched up to what was found on the scans um, with the location of that because it was around the speech box. Mm. So that was sort of what was causing that. But I knew what was going on. I'd drop anything in the right hand and it'd be like a sort of an aggressive sort of shake for about 30 seconds and then I'm fine. Afterwards, you say you were fine. Did you have any kind of side effects after that? Those kind of things happened, or was no, not really. Just okay. a little bit dazed for a couple of minutes, and then I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. And sort of when they sort of developed in terms of frequency, and some of them at times were a little bit worse. They might go for a little bit longer, but nothing after from that. It was just I'm then back into it. Because I would know what I'm trying to say. It got to the point where I was having them like when I was teaching. And I'm so I'll be mid lesson, I'll be stopped, and I'm having the sort of seizure, and I'll finish it, and I just then carry on talking, knowing where I sort of was. So it didn't stop on anything like that. Yeah. Mm. Did anyone ever sort of experience you having these, and were they noticeable Mm. to others? Yeah. Um, Yeah. They they were really clear um you could disguise them Mm. but it would be yeah really clear for people to see if it was happening especially if it was mid-conversation did you ever feel the need to disguise them in a way no not not especially okay if i could Mm. i would but not not sort of knowingly trying to disguise it yeah that's something i've always I've always made sure that I, it doesn't stop me doing anything. That was mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing that I've. It, it didn't stop me going to football. It didn't stop me travelling, and I made sure of that. And um, mm-hmm. so I, I never wanted to sort of disguise it or feel the need to. Mm. Did you ever sort of like you know volunteer the information about what they were, or if no one asked, did you never really say? I wouldn't. <laughs> I sort of, when you build up that relationship with sort of like your older students, I sort of just said to them, look, this might happen and then just leave me because there was one time where I think they panicked a little bit. So from that time, I was a bit like, they're mature enough to be able to know and sort of know the story from that. So I always just, from my older students, I always just say to them, like, this might happen. Don't panic. Just leave me and I'll be back with you in about 30 seconds. That's wow. great. I mean, it's... Yeah. it's because there's so much stigma, isn't there? And I think there's even mm-hmm. a little bit now, but but maybe a few years ago more so, where people mm-hmm. just wouldn't or struggled to explain what was going on. I know I tried to hide them when I was younger. So it, it's great that you just kind of owned it and was like, yeah, yeah this is what might happen. It's okay, though. That's, yeah. that's, that's brilliant. So do you want to then tell us a bit about, obviously, you know, you shared with us how it kind of started. Things came, you know, started to come about. And then you say, obviously, you had a scan. And then they found that that was um, the potential cause. What was that like? Do you want to share with us that? Yeah. That was probably the biggest shock 
compared to when having the full fit, that first fit, and mm. um, there wasn't, I didn't really sort of feel too much after that in terms of uh, frustration, disappointment. Um, I was doing a lot of sleeping after that first one, oh. just building up with the medication. And that was around the time of my A-levels. Yeah. So it's quite a good excuse for the girls, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> so how many medications then were you on? I, I think throughout the whole period of time, mm. I'd say I've had six or seven different tablets. Wow. Um, wow. Different, different patterns, diff- two together, weaning off one, coming on to another one. But then there's also like a little top up ones as well within that is those sort of seven. So I went through sort of the five sort of main ones throughout those years and with like little top up ones mm. as well. I think that's a really interesting thing about epilepsy, isn't it? There's no perfect alchemy for any yeah. one person. It's just whatever works for you. So what was that combination for you, the one that worked the most effectively? The one that worked best was the epilim and the oxycarbamazepine and that was probably the that was the last one I was on there was one before and I think it was the Valpray I it went toxic levels on it and Mm. then we had to come off it and there was one day I remember and just everything was double vision everything was blurry and they Mm. went into hospital that day and they said it got to toxic levels of it so where it'd gone that high so then that sort of forced another change to sort of the epilim and the oxycarbamazepine. And that was probably when I had my best spell of it, but I was still having five seizures a day. Oh, wow. wow. Five seizures a day. Yeah. That's going to so, take it out of you, isn't it? Yeah. You used to have, different, one would always be in the night, one would be literally as I'm about to fall asleep, one would be just as I wake up, and then the other ones could be any time in the day. And so then at what point was it that you then turned to, obviously, the national? I think it was when it would have been about 2017, when it was first initially mentioned to me yeah. um, in Southend, um, when we were sort of just saying that I was still having five, those sort of five seizures a day. And they, it was said that you've gone through the sort of main frontline um tablets now what about exploring the opportunity of um surgery mm. and i snatched at it to be honest i always i'm never going to turn down anything like that <laughs> or the opportunity to even sort of think of it mm. i think it's the sort of competitive nature within me so i was a bit like okay let's let's have a go let's go up and have these conversations and go from there mm. So you were all for it then, by the sounds of it, with your, yeah. your very positive I was, mindset. I was, I, was, yeah. I, I, was, I was open to it. Uh-huh. What about your family, Eamon? What about yeah. your family? What did they think? Um, they weren't dead keen on it to begin with. Um, we sort of... Uh, Mum sort of warms to the idea initially. Well, not initially, but further down the line, she sort of warmed to it and was like well it's your decision and if that's what you sort of how you want to go and then we'll look into it and all that dad was less keen um but I remember the moment when he sort of was like yeah okay it was one um appointment with John Duncan and dad said to him um would you do it 
And he goes, well, I can't, or what would, he said, what would you, and he goes, well, I can't say to do it. But he said, what I would say is, if it was my brother in that position, I would tell him to do it. And that was the point where I was like, 100%, that is, I'm going to do this. But I also felt that that was the point where dad was sort of more open to it. Just mm. that reassurance. Mm. And I'll never forget when he said that. That was the bit. Oh, did it, wow. it, so it made a massive difference then having your family on board with the decision yeah they, they would have they would have supported it but mm. I think for him to hear that was what sort of um sort of made it even better do you think it was just reassuring yeah yeah and just make where he made it that little bit more personal about his brother yeah. or a mm. brother so mm. as opposed to just saying yeah i so if I was saying to a friend of his mm. to do it, but I think the way he worded it just sort of helped with mm. uh, with making it better for dad. With the because it's one thing having a meeting with the neurologist, right? But when you come yeah. to speak to the neuro- neurosurgeons, that's quite something else. So talk us through that that meeting with the neurosurgeon. So John Duncan before said that. He said, it's easy for him to sort of say, well, this is what it's going to be. He said, but you've got to go in that meeting and look at them in the eyes and trust them with your life. And I was like, okay, you're actually right here. And mm. the way um, the two surgeons spoke that day, I was just like, definitely, this is happening. I want this to happen. They were just, they were unreal. They were so clear. Um they spoke with confidence, spoke about the sort of how surgery would be. And I literally, like you said, I trust them. I trusted them with my life mm. in that. They, they, they were so good that first meeting. And um, if it wasn't like that, I don't know whether I would have done it or I definitely would have had that sort of worry a little bit more. But I, I went into it after that with no worry at all. Because mm. they were, I, they were brilliant the way they spoke, and um, straight facts, didn't beat around anything. They were just so clear with everything they said, um, and it just filled me with confidence. Mm. Wow, it's everything, isn't it? The- yeah. yeah, definitely. You say they, so was that Andrew McAvoy and Anna Mizoraki? So mm. two of them were there, um, and Mum and Dad were there as well, and they felt that as well. Yeah. You know, did they give you a percentage or, you know, I wonder what that was like for them, you to really consciously say, okay, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, the sort of percentages I was sort of given were um, about 50% in terms of sort of no seizure. Yeah. There was 30% in there as well. They weren't the best odds with it. They were they were they were fair odds, I would say. Um, but I think that sort of competitive nature kicked in, and then I went from there. The area of your brain—you said you had the scans and stuff, and something was picked up. What exactly was it that was picked up that they wanted to remove? So to begin with, it was sort of um, we had abnormality was mentioned, um, potential tumor was mentioned. There was too much risk with it to be able to actually like do the biopsy to find out exactly what it was. 
that was probably something that I struggled with a little bit, not knowing what it was. Mm. And I, I would like to have been able to know earlier because where those sort of phrases were used, you're always thinking, oh, have I got that? Have I, or have I got that? Or, or is it that? And then you start looking and doing searching on the internet and I stopped um. that after there was a period of time where early where I was like looking a lot thinking what's this I got to the point where I was just like going to stop because you're looking at worst case scenarios mm. yeah because that's all they'll want to publish mm. because so they label sorry yeah no I just it was because if if they're going to publish something on the internet mm. they need to make it worthwhile but it might not be the same as yours no so, so they labelled it up as an abnormality. Yeah, so we probably had... Tumour was mentioned pretty early. Then it's sort of where there was no growth in, in the abnormality there. It sort of went away from that. And it was just we went with it was an abnormality on left side of the brain. Um, but it was found out to be at the end focal cortical dysplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was what... Um, they said it was towards the end. They said that they think it's this. And when they did the tests on that um, bit of mass, that it actually was. Mm. Mm. Wow. And I guess for con- I, I suppose for those of people that won't know what that is, and actually I don't, is that kind of a, a, a collection of blood vessels that are a little bit abnormal? In- I think it's, sort of, you can't, I think it was from sort of, I had it all along. Right. From there, um, but what we weren't almost. what we weren't able to sort of see was when I had the first scan <laughs> when I was like thirteen. We did a CT scan, mm. whereas all the other scans um, were MRIs, so we couldn't really sort of match them up that way to see was it actually there. Oh. But it was there on all of the scans from eighteen onwards, and there was no change in size there's no growth to it and mm-hmm. um, we had so like different MRIs we had um, with the contrast eye with it without oh. it uh, the functional ones mm. like some of them were really long mm. like an hour and a half ones they were I think as time has evolved as well, like the, the yeah. FR, fMRI imaging yeah. has got better hasn't it and they can see more clearly now you mm. know Whereas in the 80s, 90s, it was probably more difficult, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. It's interesting thinking of, yeah, if you were to look back and think of then how many tests, how many scans, how many different things. So MRI-wise, oh. was probably having two, it was definitely two a year. Wow. Um, and then around the time of where I sort of went to the National and then out to Shelfon as well. Mm. Wow. And so do you want to talk us through a little bit about the type of surgery? Because you had something slightly different to others. And so yeah. what was that like? Um, so I had yeah. a wake craniotomy. Mm. Um, so sort of like two parts to it. So um, the initial part of the surgery, but then I was woken to test some of my functions. Mm. And because of the location of the abnormality um, around the speech box, we needed to test the speech function because that was probably the biggest risk um, with the surgery. Mm. Um, it was a, did a little bit of sort of motor 
function on the right hand as well um, within it. But the main one was the speech just to test those functions during it. Mm. I mean, you say this so like casually. <laughs> Can we just go back yeah. a step? Because yeah. this is a wake brain surgery yeah. that we're talking about. So you're literally, you know, I don't want to get too like gruesome, but your skull is off, your oh. kind of position there. People are messing around in your brain. What um, is going on like for you emotionally at this point, Eamon? Well, managed, they struggled to sort of get me, keep me um, awake. Apparently I just kept sort of drifting off. So I had to sort of deal with that. Um, and we, then we, when we were in there, we're testing the, um, we test, we did tests, speech tests, the, um, the, um, sorry, the uh, afternoon before. Um, so then we were looking at the ones, the answers that I gave that day to sort of test was I still sort of um, given the same answers from that? Mm. And it was, a, it was a lot of ones about animals, <laughs> like lots of photos of animals. And I was like, I can't remember what one it was, but I was like, no, that's not that. And she was like, yes, it yeah. is. And I was like, no. So, and I remember, so they kept trying to keep me awake because I kept sort of drifting off. And you can hear all the noise going on in the background. What's that like? Hearing the noise, yeah. Bit weird. Yeah. But weren't too bad. Okay. I, did, I didn't try and sort of engage that asking, mm. what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, Imagine. What, 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 what are you doing now? <laughs> um, I remember, though, that with the um, anaesthetist, he mm. just kept trying to keep me talking throughout. And he was like, what's your, what's your sort of plans for the rest of the week then? And I was like, do you reckon there's going to be any chance of me going to the United game on Monday? <laughs> oh. So I must have. So that, that was the Thursday, the surgery. Yeah. So to think about, to be thinking about that as well, I must have been pretty awake with it. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. I think the response he gave was, <laughs> well, well, we'll see in a couple of days. Just like... Uh, so I must have known enough about what was going on. Yeah. Despite... Well, I really want to. I really want to ask now. Did you end up going to then the? No, uh... no, absolutely not. <laughs> a bit optimistic. I, I remember watching it yeah. on the on the laptop in in the hospital. Though. Oh. Oh wow. Um. <sighs> so blimey, all this is going on. <laughs> how long did it go on for, Raymond? How long did the surgery go on I think for? It, we were about eight and a half hours all in. Right. Okay. And did they pop you back to sleep to kind of close you up? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, I don't remember any bits of that. Mm. Right. So what is the first moment you remember having when you woke up from, from that surgery? Well, first bit, um, probably down in sort of intensive care. Mm. Part, um, sort of spotting that I had the bandage on the head I was like okay didn't mm. really sort of um and mum and dad did actually manage to get down I don't know if they were sort of meant to but I'd see them quickly and just I could see the relief in them yeah and it was that moment was big and I remember that that bit that bit was quite upsetting sort of seeing them having that yeah. so you had that just 
on the back after after the surgery, and you're sort of a little bit all over the place. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I just I really wanted something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Did they give you something? I was desperate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they gave a sandwich, and I was like, I don't want that. <laughs> What did you want? So I, managed, I managed to get another one. Oh. I think they offered me a carrot and hummus sandwich, and I was like, no. Oh. <laughs> that was all they had. So they managed to find something else. But obviously, where you've been sort of kneel by mouth for so long, mm. I was just like, I need something to eat. Wow. And then it was just a lot of monitoring through that night. Um, but not too much pain at that point. Thing with the sort of the painkillers that you were sort of having, yeah, and it was just lots of sleep, well, lots of trying to sleep, and then lots of getting woken up from a lot of monitoring. Mm. That was quite a sort of destructive night. Mm. I bet, but not too much pain, yeah. which I thought there was going to be. I thought mm. those initial couple of days would be that sort of initial, the worst part of it, but it wasn't. That sort of was a little bit further down the line. Not that mm. there was major pain after because the sort of the tablets would sort of the painkillers would sort of negate it but there was there was nothing at that point yeah which I I didn't expect I thought there was gonna that was gonna be the worst part yeah I think you do really build yourself up for that thinking oh my god brain surgery it's it's bound to come with so much pain after it and it it, you're right it's not actually that bad is it no. I mean, it's bad, and, and but it's you, not. You say that to people and they don't believe yeah. you. I know. Yeah. But then what was it? So you say that was your experience, you know, of the first immediate, you know, not as much pain as you thought. But then what were the next few days like, you know, adjusting to them being in the hospital? How was it? You know, what was, if you can talk us through that as well. So the biggest thing, there was a little bit of speech difficulty. Okay. Um from those sort of couple of days after Mm. just could not get the words out Mm. the words whatever I wanted to sort of say um and then even things like trying to write my name lost all of that I I had to have an had to have an alphabet sheet just to to try and do those things and I've still got the sheets of where I was trying to write like the dates and my name and yeah, those were sort of things that were just, they were the worst bits because I was like, is it ever going to, will this come back? Yeah. And the speech was getting better throughout the week. Mm. Um, but I, almost, I had to like retrain myself how to like even just write my name. Yeah. Wow. And I, I wonder what that then was like because, you know, everyone's experiences are different, but is it like, you it's as if when you're trying to say something you know what you want to say but you just can't it's like you know but you can't there's that challenge that barrier can't get that just could not get those words out yeah um and it was almost like i had to go all the words i was sort of using were like real basic like tier one sort of words yeah completely went there because i remember it was when I left hospital, I was then having some speech therapy. Okay. And the first um, sort of session, they gave me a photo of, Mm. uh, it was like a a river, there was a boat in it, there was a bridge, some sort of 
um, animals. And it was like, can you write down um, what you see within the photo? Yeah. And I was like, oh, it, uh, and it, I think they gave me like a minute to write it. And it was like, what I wrote was like the most basic thing. It was, there is a boat. Um, but then when you do it six weeks down the line, mm. it was, there is a barge in the middle of, it was just to see that progress within that mm. unreal um how many animals could you name things like that i was going with dog cat and then i remember the final way down the line like the first one i went with was, was like uh kookaburra koala bear oh wow i think i was watching the cricket in australia uh, at the time so that but just wouldn't have been able to even get anything like that yeah. to see the difference in sort yeah. of like the level of words that i was um, sort of speaking and writing mm. in those six weeks that was where I sort of thought okay this is now I'm getting way down going back to sort of where it was before yeah I mean what's coming uh, through aiming is that there's a lot of patience I think people need to have when they've undergone mm. something like this I mean did you find it are you a patient per- person by nature or did you have your frustrations well, I can have my moments uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I said it earlier, I'm just where I'm quite competitive mm. or coming from a sort of competitive background with the sort of sport and things like that. I just, I always will just keep going and there'll be moments where you're, you're so frustrated. Um, but if you've got that sort of desire to get back to where you were and not let it get in the way of your mm. life, then you can get there. That's... Mm. That's a massive thing. Do you think there's something there about um, accepting and also being patient with yourself? Yeah, I think you've got to accept that there's going to be yeah. little bits. Like I, I look at my hands now mm. and it's covered in ink from this morning. Just yeah. because where I still haven't got the sort of feeling in my hand, I don't know where, like for, I don't know where the sort of pen is touching. So my hand is like covered in ink for yeah. the day because I've like the sort of side of not side of it as such, but what's hasn't come back. I've still like got haven't got full sensation in that right hand, okay. um, and it does still clench a little bit and sort of it gets quite sweaty. Mm. Um, but yeah, the sort of the feeling within that hand still hasn't come back. So. I've now realised that that is something that's going to stay. But would I change it? Absolutely not. Mm. Um, So you have to sort of appreciate that there are going to be minor bits. Mm. But again, making sure that that doesn't dictate you and dictate or change your life. And if it's there, you just manage it. Because it's worth it for what has changed. It's like comparing, isn't it? It's seeing, but what is it worth? And then I would love to ask, you know, I wonder how how have you been obviously now after having the surgery? Do you feel it has been effective with regards to your seizures with the epilepsy? Do you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, so it's it, it couldn't have gone any better. Oh. Okay, so well, we're three and a bit years down. I haven't had any seizure or not even like a th- thought of anything, not even like a sensation where I think, oh, 
this is what like all I could have said, not even a thing. Um, so to wow. have a little bit of feeling gone in this hand and a little bit of maybe struggling to still to get the odd word out here and there, mm. it's, it's all been worth it. Yeah. Wow. And what, what impact do you think it's had on your life, Eamon? So you've gone from having five, six mini seizures a day to having nothing. What, what difference had that made to your life? Can have a solid night's sleep. <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing. Just that yeah. all there were periods of time where I was just feeling really tired because if you're having a seizure bang in the middle of the night, it just, although you might go straight back to sleep after it, it's mm-hmm. still disruptive. And yeah. um, that would probably be the biggest thing. Um, and just not having that sort of worry of, oh, when, if I'm having a seizure and I've got something in my hands, going to drop it, things like that. Mm. So they, they've been the biggest changes. Mm. Um, oh, man. So one, one final question, I think, Eamon. What would be your advice to anyone who is considering having brain surgery? Mm. My advice would be to be open to it. Um and to trust the advice that you're given and think logically about what the risks of the surgery are and the potential um, sort of negative side effects after mm. and weigh up, would it be worth it to potentially change your life? And if you trust that advice and you have the support around you, then go for it. Mm. Wow. No regrets then? None at all. Not, not one little bit and if it if it happened again i would go and do it all again yeah amazing, amazing. wow that is amazing thank you amen no thank you thanks for the invite hopefully if you are a patient that is thinking of having neurosurgery this chat may have helped and if you have had surgery then we're sure there were parts of it that you could relate to Join us next time when Lisa and I will be joined by another special guest, Eamon's mum, who will be sharing her perspective as a parent of a child that has gone through this journey. As a reminder, you can keep updated on our latest podcast by following us on all social media platforms. And until then, stay safe, stay well and stay tuned.